So hello and welcome to the Sparkling New Podcast Series by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and today I'm just going to spend uh, a bit of time introducing the new series, maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, but firstly, I'd like to apologise uh, for those of you who are committed to us and have noticed that there has been something of a hiatus in our production of digital content. Uh, I am sorry about this. Uh, the cause has been um, being a bit overcommitted with teaching at university, but this has eased, so more digital content will start to flow. So in essence, the series is about making the case that a range of principally philosophical tools and disciplines and practices are necessary in order to live a fruitful spiritual life. And this is a, a kind of proposition that I think a lot of the ancients, East and West, more or less took for granted, but which I deeply suspect we have lost sight of. So the basic premise of the series is that we, as human beings, are highly capable of productive and creative subjective transformations. But if and only if we have and utilise the right kinds of techniques and tools and practices. And these include, but are not exclusive of, philosophical techniques and tools. And I suspect that a lot of people attempt fruitful, productive, subjective transformations without cultivating those tools, and for that reason are not particularly successful in the transformation. So I suppose the series is about um, filling in the gap and trying to provide some of those philosophical tools. The series might be a little bit critical, but it's mainly constructive. Uh, and as far as I'm capable of doing this, uh, what I'm going to try and do is speak to what has become a very burgeoning category in many modern societies. And this is a category uh, that some sociologists have defined as, quote-unquote, spiritual but not religious. So actually, uh, a recent research project in Australia has found that about 18% of Generation Zs, so they're people who are in school uh, in year 11 or 12, are in this category of spiritual but not religious. And that's actually roughly akin to those who are in the, who are in the religiously committed category, which is around 17%. And this is a, a fraction less than those who are in the kind of non-believing, this-worldly or physicalist or materialist category at 23%. But in this, in this research project, there was also another group who the researchers called seekers. And these are basically people with very robust spiritual beliefs and practices, but which don't fit with any particular religious tradition. So they're basically eclectic in their standpoint. So if you actually add them to the spiritual but not religious category, this becomes uh, the, the biggest category of all, at about 26%, roughly a quarter of the student population. So it's this group that I'm more or less speaking to in the series. And I don't know what the numbers might be more generally for older generations like myself, Generation X and above, and in different cultures beyond Australia. But I deeply suspect it's a category which is really growing very strongly. So what does it mean, this category is spiritual but not religious? Well, you know, these are people who tend to reject their traditional religious upbringings, either cultural or familial, but who nonetheless do not reject the idea 
that there is more to human life than the mere acquisition of commodities or career success or a kind of naive hedonism or some kind of scientific form of crass materialism. What this more to human life actually looks like is something that I think many people in this category want to keep open-ended. And in this series, it's something I also want to keep open-ended. So uh, I'm not going to be offering any kind of particular spiritual vantage point or articulating any specific ontology for what kind of spiritual life one should lead. And in fact, this open-endedness is very consistent with the basic standpoint of those in this category. You might say there is almost a kind of commitment phobia to any one set of doctrines or beliefs. There is often a kind of reticence of believing, quote-unquote, per se, and maybe an underlying fidelity to, to good reasoning and evidence, and depending on the person, to a greater or lesser extent, the insights of modern science. But I think it's also true in the same breath to say that there's usually a sense that science cannot give us all of the answers, especially on the most important ethical and existential questions, such as posed in the ancient classical Greco-Roman world, how do we actually live well? What does a flourishing life look like? What do we need to do in order to experience that? Or from the Eastern point of view, how can we become more enlightened or more compassionate, uh, closer to the true nature of reality? Now, quite clearly, the range of orientations and beliefs and practices is going to be very varied for people who are in this category. It is an inherently pluralistic and eclectic category. And there may not be that much which unites them. So, you know, the person who has a small interest in, say, tarot cards and maybe attends pagan events is probably going to be very different from the person who studies Seneca and does a little bit of yoga for the health of their body. So I think there could be, maybe there is, a kind of unruly mess which comes as part of the terrain in this category. And I think maybe this is a kind of important point. Very often there's a kind of messiness within particular individuals themselves who occupy this space. So in other words, alongside all of the openness and pluralism and non-dogmatism is also a lot of confusion. In that it's rather simpler and easier to just sign up to a particular church or a temple or a creed or a tradition and just take it from there and sign up to everything involved in that. Or the other approach, uh, to just sternly reject the whole thing and just be a committed materialist and go about trying to make your fortune in this capitalist world. Now, for whatever reason, and often I think these are very well founded, a lot of people find both of those impossible to do. And that leaves them and us with rather a juicy problem. Which is, well, what should you actually do if you're in that kind of situation? What should you read or listen to or study or think about or contemplate or reflect upon or practice? And how should you do it? And most critically, how do you know if you're on the right track or if you're barking up the wrong tree? 
What kind of tools do you need to have in order to be able to judge that clearly? So these are the kinds of questions that I'm sort of posing and attempting to some degree to answer in the series. You might say I'm adopting the rather humble posture of a cleaner. A cleaner who walks into a messy room and just quietly goes about trying to do some tidying. And my cleaning equipment is basically the tools of philosophy. And if I'm trying to sell you something, it's basically the idea that you yourself need to make some kind of effort to acquire and then utilize these tools. So, today uh, in this very brief introduction, just to kind of give you a bit of a sense of where we're going in the series, I'm going to present just one very, very simple, easy philosophical discipline, which I think everyone can master without any real effort, but which I think is, is very necessary to help clear up some of the messiness in our spiritual but not religious rooms. And this is a tool that every teacher tries more or less in vain to instill into undergraduates. And the tool goes by the name, actually reading the text. And I'm going to make my case that this is important. And to do so, I want to pick one topic, which I think more or less everyone has heard about, and probably a good number of people in the spiritual but not religious category have an interest in and maybe even practice to some degree. And this thing is called mindfulness. Now, just about everybody knows that this is an ancient Buddhist meditation technique taught by the Buddha himself as preserved in the Pali Sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. So Sati is Pali for mindfulness. And if you prefer the Sanskrit, you can call it Smriti. In the Sutta, the Buddha explains the four foundations of mindfulness. They are mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mental events, and mindfulness of consciousness. Now, assuming that you haven't read the Sutta, I'm going to ask you just one question in order to help my argument gain some traction. And the question is this. What do you think the first foundation of mindfulness, that's mindfulness of body, implies? What is mindfulness of body? So I want you to have a quick think about this for about 30 seconds. And in fact, I want you to press pause. What do you think mindfulness of body implies? Now, actually, I don't trust you to press pause. We're in an age of impatience. So what I'm going to do is be silent for 30 seconds to let you think about your answer. Okay, so I'm going to bet that at least some of you, maybe many of you, thought mindfulness of body means being aware of the body, of its sensations, of its feelings, of its pains, and so forth. Some of you may have thought about doing yoga or perhaps a martial art, using your body in an aware, quote-unquote, be in the now, 
kind of way of Zen and chopping wood of an athlete in the zone jogging along not thinking just perfectly in the present breathing and mind aligned so to put simply this kind of clear awareness of our physicality a kind of integration of mind and body that brings us into the now so I'm betting at least some of you had those kinds of thoughts and to be clear that's not wholly wrong in fact it's very largely right in the sutta those elements are definitely alluded to so I'll read a bit of the sutta so this is a contemplation of the body mindfulness of breathing and how O bhikkhus does a bhikkhu live contemplating the body in the body here O bhikkhus a bhikkhu a bhikkhu is a word for a monk by the way gone to the forest to the foot of a tree or to an empty place sits down bends his legs crosswise on his lap keeps his body erect and arouses mindfulness in the object of meditation namely the breath which is in front of him mindful he breathes in and mindful he breathes out he thinking i breathe in long he understands when he is breathing in long or thinking i breathe out long he understands when he is breathing out long okay so it goes on uh further on on that kind of tangent for a while but also what's mentioned is rather a different element of mindfulness of body and i'm going to keep reading from the sutta skipping ahead a bit and the section is called the reflection on the repulsiveness of the body and further obikus obiko reflects on just this body hemmed up by the skin and full of manifold impurity from the soles up and from the top of the hair down thinking thus there are in this body hair of the head hair of the body nails teeth skin flesh fibrous threads veins nerves sinews tendons bones marrow kidneys heart liver pleura spleen lungs contents of stomach intestines feces bile phlegm pus blood sweat solid fat tars fat dissolved saliva mucus synovic fluid urine okay so some of you might have your eyebrows raised a little bit now let's read on just a little further and this is called cemetery contemplation number 1 and further obikus if a biku in whatever way sees a body dead one two or three days swollen blue and festering thrown into the charnel ground which is cemetery in ancient india he thinks of his own body thus this body of mine too is of the same nature as that body is going to be like that body and has not got past the condition of becoming like that body thus he lives contemplating the body in the body internally and clings to naught in the world and in fact it goes on for another eight cemetery contemplations which i won't read but you can have a look for yourselves if you wish so as you can see mindfulness of body really means becoming aware of all of the body's repugnant parts and most especially of its impermanence of becoming aware that it's filled with pus and blood and shit and that it's not too far from being a rotting corpse 
So as I just said, obtaining mindfulness of body, according to the sutta, entails nine stages of cemetery contemplations. Developing the mindfulness of identifying yourself, your own material body, with dead bodies at different stages of decay. From being a fresh corpse to being basically dust. So, when the Buddha himself talks about gaining mindfulness of body, this is what he actually says. And the implication is pretty hard to miss. It is that the body is a problem. It is a place of dukkha, dissatisfaction and suffering and pain. So mindfulness of body implies going beyond the body and particularly giving up all the forms of attachment to it. Now, I want to put it to you that 90% of what we hear about mindfulness completely ignores this. And perhaps even presents something radically contradictory. So one can think of Gwyneth Paltrow, who's like the pin-up for the kind of wellness movement. Gwyneth Paltrow looking immaculate whilst drinking a post-Pilates goji berry smoothie. So if we think for a moment about the way mindfulness is actually presented to us, you know, second and third hand, in the media, in social media, through contemporary psychology, uh, through the wellness movements, new age movements, and so forth. Attachment to the body is something very often reified more deeply rather than problematized or relinquished. It is something very often commodified. So we're constantly sold products and ideas or even retreats to help our bodies be more perfect and more beautiful, more healthy. And mindfulness is often tacked on to all of that. So the Buddha's version of mindfulness is something that Gwyneth Paltrow does not want to know. That her good looks will fade and she'll be a corpse. That no matter how much kale, manuka honey and turmeric she consumes, she will be buried. And so will I. And so will you. And in the meantime, the body is not so much a perfect temple of health and radiance and divine energy, but more a combination of impermanent elements that constantly give rise to disharmony and illness, disease. That is, it's a temple of dukkha, of suffering, disease, dissatisfaction and pain. Okay, now here's my argument. The point here is not that the Buddha is right and that Gwyneth Paltrow is wrong. Although, to be frank, if you really push me on that matter, I would assent to that proposition. The point is that there may be, and very often is, a very, very large gap between what we may have heard about a particular topic or idea or technique or practice and the actual context in which that idea or technique or practice arose. And my claim is rather simple. It's that no matter how you look at it, you are always better off engaging with that genuine context. So this implies, often but not always, actually reading the text, getting to the heart of things. So, for this example, if you are involved in mindfulness practice of any sort, or you wish to be, or you have an interest in it, then I'm saying... First step is go off and actually read the root text. 
In this case, the text from which the great tradition of mindfulness practice actually emerged in, which is preserved in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's very easy to find. There are multiple translations available for free on the internet. It's five minutes of Googling and maybe half an hour of reading. So I guess I'm also saying, don't rely on third-party information. There's masses of this flying around the digital world in every passing second, and much of it is in the business of trying to sell you something. So get to the root of the things that you're interested in. And then, on that basis, when you engage with other kinds of information on the topic, which might well be necessary, then you'll already have an understanding conducive to good practice. Now, this kind of injunction that I'm giving here does not imply that you have to believe the root text or adopt its position wholesale without criticism or some kind of dialectical engagement. It does not mean that on this question you ought to follow the Buddha instead of Gwyneth Paltrow on the question of what the body is and how you should use it. It simply means that you make the effort to get to the root of the things that you're interested in and potentially practicing, and that you pay due attention to context so that you can see for yourself how a given idea or practice may have arisen and thereby to see how it might change even radically through time. So in other words, you're then in a position to know whether to follow the tradition more purely or strictly, or maybe something new, or maybe even something contradictory, which has emerged from it. So all it simply implies is that you take responsibility for your own knowledge and understanding, such that your practice emerges from that kind of clarity and understanding. So that's a rather humble tool. The first little tool of the series. It's pretty simple, it's pretty easy. It just is, read the text. Go and find it, actually read the text. Get to the heart of the things that you're interested in practicing. So, that should give you some rough idea about what the series will be about. It's really about uncovering different kinds of philosophical tools, generally humble ones, which are necessary to clean the messiness of the house. And I think that the most important tool is probably also the trickiest to master, and the one which left unmastered leaves a spiritual but not religious person most vulnerable to wandering deeply into the waters of illusion. And this is a tool of correct, valid, or true knowledge. In philosophy, the tool of epistemology. So I will start there in the next episode. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I know we have some loyal listeners out there, so if you're one of those and you think this might help someone you know, please feel free to share it. And please stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au. As I mentioned at the start, digital content will start to flow again through the spring.